welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Welcome to IOM3 Investigates. I'm Catherine Williams, Head of Content at IOM3. And my guest today is Christine Blackmore, our new Vice President. This is less of an investigation than an introduction. Christine is an Associate Director at Wardle Armstrong International, working as a geoenvironmentalist and environmental auditor. She has 20 years experience in international mining and metallurgical industry. Christine, I've known you for quite a while, so it's uh, nice to actually get you on record and talk about a little bit about yourself. So can you tell our listeners a little about your background? Thank you, Catherine. It's difficult to start because I changed my career or reinvented myself when I was about 40 years old. And before that, I'd been in the Royal Navy, but anyway, and then I came out, I had children. And it was time to do something for Christine. So I decided I'd go back to university and um, study there because it fitted in with the children. I decided to do geology and took a degree in applied geology. And the rest is history because I literally uh, got a job at Wardle Armstrong uh, the day after I graduated, uh, which I didn't quite expect to get fixed up so soon. And I had quite a lot of people that didn't think I'd get fixed up at all, but I did. And I've been at Wardle Armstrong and never looked back. So you've been at Wardle Armstrong for a while. You've worked your way up and done lots of stuff on the way. What's your career highlight so far? Oh, there's a lot of career highlights, really. I think one of the things was when I first started at Wardell Armstrong, I never expected in my wildest dreams to work overseas like I have done. And that's been the biggest bonus. Travelling, I mean, you tra- I'm going to work, go in there, but, I, but I, I look at it as it's like going into the unknown, meeting people I would never, ever have envisaged meeting before, going places I never envisaged. So there's quite a lot of highlights. I mean, there's a lot of highlights from different countries that I've been to, the different people I've met along the way. So really, really enjoyed the time I'd spent in Russia, but equally I've been a number of times to Africa and I've really enjoyed that and Latin America. So a bit too difficult a question to pin down, Catherine. That makes sense. So you've worked on recently on things like the tailings dams issues and yes. on cyanide. Where do you think the mining industry still needs to pull its bootlaces up and where where has it done really well recently? The mining industry has picked up its game in the last 30 to 40 years because there's more environmental awareness, there's more social awareness than there was years and years ago and you can see that in the legislation you can see that in people's attitude there's always going to be 
something he could do better here and there. And that applies to industry, not just mining. There's always going to be a something. But with the tailings dams, people are getting aware. I mean, it was unfortunate. There was two disasters in Brazil that sort of highlighted it even more. But I mean, things are being done. Things are moving along. And one of the new things that's coming to be is being able to monitor movements by satellite as well as using boots on the ground. So that's a new innovation that's sort of move, moving along. People's awareness. Uh, there's a lot of investment in uh, monitoring the tailings dam by the mining companies. So it is moving along and the mining industry will always need a mining industry because uh, we need commodities. We need to make the general public aware that the commodities that we buy, like the washing machines, the televisions, uh, even down to ceramic tiles, even down to plasterboard, these minerals have to be mined. So there's always going to be a mining industry. It's just how, how it's been portrayed over the years. But there's tremendous improvements. Absolutely. And obviously, you know, we, we need things as simple as manganese for lithium-ion batteries and Absolutely. we need all sorts as we shift to a more carbon-neutral economy. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's making the general public aware that we have to mine these commodities. We have to do the exploration for them. We have to mine them to feed the manufacturing industry. And you can't, you can't recycle everything. Not everything's recyclable. Some things has to come from raw materials, so raw materials will always be needed. So, Christine, what has IOM3 meant to you during your career? Well, it, it means a lot to me, actually, because I actually fell into being the Western Institute secretary. When I joined Wardell Armstrong 20 years ago, um, one of the gentlemen that was on a, a geology course Prior to me, he'd also gone to Wardell Armstrong. He was the Western Institute secretary at that time. Um, but he was leaving Wardell's to move to another job in a different part of the UK. And he asked me if I would take it over. And I, I literally had to join to become the secretary. That was, <laughs> and I took, it, I, I took it over. And... Um, I sort of got into the Western Institute and I, and I was determined to make it better than it was. It was a bit of, uh, if I say, it was a bit dead and dying when I took it over. And then uh, I moved venues, I repackaged it and all sorts of things. I opened the papers up. So I did, I did about six years as the uh, secretary. And then I did about four or five years as president. And then I, it was time for... I took it as far as I thought I could take it at that time. And it's still a really good branch. And then I was kind of asked if I'd put my name forward for the MTD, which I have, and I've kind of moved that on a little bit. And then I, sort of, I kind of applied for vice presidents. So it's been a big part of my life, really, well, over the 20 years. And I still enjoy doing it. I, I like people. I like to be part of something. And I like... I like doing things, really, if that describes it. Actually, that brings me on to a question I was going to ask you a bit later, but I'll, I'll go for it now. I've always admired how you inspire others to support your goals. If 
we at IOM3 ask you to do something, it's as good as done. So oh. you've, you've touched on your background in the Navy and so on. So maybe some of it comes from there. But what tips do you have for inspiring and leading people and bringing them along with you? Well, I always like to think I make things enjoyable because people come along if they enjoy it. And I, while it's a serious matter, you can still enjoy the meeting. I think, uh, for one thing, what I did with the Western Institute as an example was I made it an evening out. So because instead of going along and just having the lecture and then everybody disappears, I thought, hang on, everybody's coming around half past six, seven o'clock. Maybe it's a bit like tea time or a little snack in the evening. So I, I, I made it and I started it off just sort of saying, well, we'll have a buffy supper. And I just had a buffy supper first, sort of the, after the first AGM, I thought I'll have a buffy supper, we'll get to know everybody. And then I had a bonfire toffee one. And then I had a, a, a Christmassy one. And then I had... And when I didn't have one, everybody was saying, well, where's the Buffy supper? Because after that, everybody sort of networked. They not only came for the lecture, which they enjoyed, they then came for the Buffy supper. And I couldn't throw them out at 10 o'clock at night. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to clear up at 10 o'clock. But it, it was making that effort. And I do try to go around and thank everybody for coming. I could... I sometimes can only spend a couple of minutes with everybody, but I always go around as many as I can get, especially new faces and say, thank you very much for coming. Really, I hope you enjoyed it. You know, hope to see you again. But um, I don't know. I, I like just to make things enjoyable. And same with the MTD, really. Uh, when Before we start our meetings, we always have a little, we have the lunch, obviously, but we all have the banter around the table and we have a chat about where we are what we're doing and we're always laughing and joking and and then we get down to our serious business you put far more effort into it if you make it enjoyable and i like doing things and i like if we say we're going to do something as a volunteer you do it otherwise i can't see the point in volunteering for something if you're not going to do anything sounds sounds like a good plan and uh, yeah <laughs> certainly i can speak for the mtd results they they have come through with a a lot of things for the institute recently um so now we've moved you on and made you vice president so yeah. <laughs> how does that feel after all the, the years put in at the coalface so to speak <laughs> yeah the coal um <laughs> absolutely uh, absolutely delighted i was really honored actually i mean i i think back to when you know before i sort of took my degree and everything I, in between finishing the navy and, and going back to university i made curtains made wedding dresses and all sorts of things and then i look back and i think to myself gosh you're vice president of this now and it, it just seems a bizarre because i can remember myself pushing the pram round to the school with the kids and whatever you know and i think she was this person after I have to pinch myself to think who this person is sometimes and but it I, I to me it's a great honor it's a great honor to have got this far from sort of being secretary of the Western Institute and just going along so I'm really pleased myself 
I hope everybody else is pleased, but I'm pleased. <laughs> I think it's it's fantastic. You know, there've always been women involved in the institute in all our industries we know that there have been women beaver beaver and away in the background and we're finally reaching a point now where women are being recognized for that because quite often in the past they didn't always get the recognition for the work they put in oh, well that's that, that's true i do like to think that in my day job with Wardle armstrong and with the I've got there because of uh, do, being, doing, I, I don't like to think I've got there just because you're a woman. I like to think, uh, especially in my day job, it's always been a very much of a man's world, but I like to think I'm asked to do a job because I'm good at it, not because it's a woman. And quite yes. often if I use Chris Blackmore, I, yeah, I think I'm automatically... Uh, when I've been to some mine sites, they automatically think it's a man that's coming, and and he isn't. <laughs> so when I so when I arrive with my little pink suitcase, <laughs> you know, they have a little surprise that it's Christine Blackmore as opposed to a Chris Blackmore. <laughs> you wouldn't have reached the positions you've reached if you were just there to tick a box. I think obviously there's a lot of ability behind you know, the giggle and the little pink suitcase. Yeah, well, well, hopefully there is. <laughs> um, I think it's because when I was a mature student, I was ready to learn. Might might sound um, wrong in some people, but I'd sort of had a career, then I'd had my children and everything, and then I could see the children growing up, and while they love mummy, they don't need mummy 24-7. They just don't. And as they get older, you know, they come and visit you now and again. And I wanted something for me. And I, and I went through as a mature student. And I got the learning bug, if that makes sense. And I started with me applied geology. And, and I thought, oh, I'll do a master's geology. Because it was, it was there. And I thought, I could, I could at least strive for that. And then I thought, well, I, I could do my chartered environmentalist and chartered scientist. So it was like, it was like the reinvention of Christine started to do a learning curve. And I, but I like doing new things and I like new challenges and I like learning. I mean, even now, I mean, uh, in a couple of years time, I'm looking towards a retirement. But it doesn't stop me looking into learning new things all the time. And I probably will till the day I die. And I think, whenever I've gone out and done a job, whether it's a site job or a desk job, I always learn a something from a job. And I think if you don't learn a something from a job, it's time to pack it up. I've sort of learned things from jobs that I could take that bit of experience and apply it somewhere else. Then you find, you put, you start an, uh, a new little challenge somewhere and you learn a lot of things from there and you can apply them somewhere else. So it's, I've enjoyed that and I've enjoyed having a lot of challenges in my career, which has given me a tremendous experience I would have never even dreamed of. So you're talking about having faced lots of challenges and taking lessons forward to the next project. Can you describe any of the challenges you faced to a moment that had you scratching your head? Well, I mean, there's lots of things scratching the head. I mean, the first job I ever went out to do for Wardell's, 
I'd had quite a lot of experience in, in the construction of uh, landfills and, and that because that's what I did before being a CQA engineer on tailings dams. And then I, all of a sudden I got to a place where they didn't have any geotechnical testing ability and it was so difficult and you had to bring so much experience to that. I mean, luckily I'd had a lot of experience working in landfills because with the, with engineering of the cells and the laying of the HDPE, I'd got a lot of experience with that, that working with the UK Environment Agency and I applied all those skills and I had to do some applying because if you can work to the UK Environment Agency, that, that put me in good stead for working anywhere in the world to do with um, the environment and, uh, and that. So I was really pleased, although you think, oh, the Environment Agency wants this, he wants that and wants the other. When you get overseas to apply their standards was a great thing and I and I did have to apply them quite quite a lot in Africa because they don't have uh, a robust environmental agency they don't have robust standards they don't have the construction um, ability to what the UK contractors have have so it was a whole new ball game of sort of showing them how it needs to be done better so here we are Starting as vice president, you've got all this experience behind you. What plans do you have for the role? Well, the, the one thing that I, well, plans for the role, it's what the role's got plans for me, really. Um, it's a case of, I've not been involved much with what I call IOM3 party politics, put it that way. <laughs> That's my little buzzword for party politics. So I've got a new ball game to, to learn on there. But one of the things that I do know, I have noticed over the years with, with IOM3, and I'm as guilty as the next one, is, is connectivity. with, and, and I do feel that we need to do more things collectively as opposed to in a silo. Now, I, I can only speak from MTD's side. We haven't we haven't really took much activity with such as the applications or the, the materials or the packaging because it's not come into our sphere. But I do think as more of a vice president's role or even like the TCB level, that that connectivity needs to be done. You need, and we need to do things together. You know, sort of even if we did a conference a year, together on a particular commodity we can take it from the exploration which is the earth sciences we can involve the extractive metallurgy or, or the mineral processes we can in, do the mining we can do applications we can do materials and then we can do recycling sustainability for a particular commodity and I, I think going forward that's one of the big things we could do but equally I, th I think we could do publications between all of us because and this doesn't apply to everybody in the world but there is a feeling that if you can buy it out of amazon and aol that's where it comes from mm -hmm. and and the public awareness of where all those materials come from whether it's the iron and steel whether it's a copper whether it's tantalum or indium or something like that 
we buy it out of AOL and it comes as a ready done. So we never really think about these things have got to be mined. And if we mine them, we've got to have a mine. We've got to have a mineral processing. We've got to have found it in the first place. And then once we've got smelted it and put it into ingots, then we've got to make something with it. So we can make something with it. And then we've got to think about the end of life. And I think the IOM3 has got a great opportunity to do some public awareness. Uh, but I'm not saying they've got to be great big in-depth textbooks, but sort of make it more like captions and points of interest and things. And could one of those kind of leaflets go in every commodity that people buy, you know? So, so people do know that mining is an important thing, but equally manufacturing, smelting it and using it, they're all important. And we, could, we need to be part of that because well, that's what the IOM3 represents. When I was being interviewed for IOM3, I, I, I did say, if I'm going to represent the IOM3 on occasions, if I'm ever invited anywhere, I would like to speak to the chairmans or go along to other people's meetings and just find out what, what the other half does because I know what MTD do. I know what the extractive metallurgy is and, and that kind of work is. I know what exploration geology is because of geologists. But such as, and I, I understand the word applications, but I don't understand in the context of the IOM3. So I, I would like to meet the others so we can, we can talk about where we could move along together. I'd like to understand. So if I do go out anywhere, I can then talk about them as well as I can talk about the mining. I can go and talk about the mining industry, but I can't go and talk about your applications because I've not been down that track yet. The thing, you know, we're here to represent the entire materials cycle. Obviously, this year has been a strange one all round. Um, we know that mining's been hit hard by the effects of COVID-19. Um, output has been reduced, which is having a knock-on effect on other areas. Um, so how does the industry recover from 2020? Well, there'll always be a need for the commodity. There'll always be a need for the metal or the mineral. So it's a case, it, it's a case of, uh, it will recover. It'll always recover because there'll always be a need. It might take time to do that. I mean, there's a lot of mines still in, in full production because they're still, they are isolated you know, take the one as I was in in Africa. It's a case of it's so isolated they don't have, they can just stop visitors going. But didn't mean to say they they need to stop production. They can stockpile it until it's ready for for use. But it will it will re, it will recover. And I mean, there's a lot of mines. I mean, British Fluor Spa sent me their um, and I th I think they published it in our um, one of our newsletters. The COVID COVID protection that they'd put in place, which was quite robust and that, but they haven't closed or stopped production. They have probably scaled it down, but it's not stopped. Mining will always be there. Yeah, absolutely. And then it will be up to the markets and demand to, to, to start to picking up. Forward. Yeah. 
Christine, tell me a little more about who you worked with in your career and what you've learnt over the years. Well, for the first few years of working for Warder Armstrong, as I say, I worked in, in waste, landfill engineering, um, landfill gas, that kind, that, kind, that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, Dr Chris Broadbent was the um, Western Institute president uh, when I was secretary. And I used to give him a lift to, we used to go to the meetings together kind of thing after work mm-hmm. and I always used to give him a lift and he always told me about all these places he'd, he'd gone to in, a, in the world you know and Arthur. and I was absolutely overpowered with this and I said I said I'd love just one job overseas I thought that would be wonderful anyway little did I know he took a mental note of this and, and about three or four months later I was called into his office and uh, he said, I've got a little job right up your street. And he said, it's building a tailings dam in Mauritania. And I'm, I'm, I'm just like an excited bunny rabbit, you know, sort of, wow, I've been asked to do an overseas job, you know, because it's something I've never, ever envisioned. And I thought, this is it. This is the one. Anyway, uh, I said, oh, yes, I'll go to Mauritania. And I had no idea where it was. The last place I thought it was in Africa. <laughs> I actually thought it was one of the Eastern Bloc countries. <laughs> but yeah, any, anyway, <laughs> it, it turned out to be in, in uh, West Africa. And the actual site itself is in the Sahara Desert. <laughs> and uh, for the next four years, I mean, I was going out to do one job. And anyway, for the next four years, I, I literally spent... Uh, working out there on eight, eight, eight and three, eight out there, three back, eight out there, three back. And I, I sort of uh, got to know everybody on site. I was not only doing the construction, they gave me the opportunity to learn to be a cyanide auditor. I did waste oil um, convoys. I did waste oil plans. Um, I even dug dead bodies up. And that was a political study. And I had, I, that is the most, it was a very challenging place in the Sahara Desert because there wasn't (laughs) anything else there. And I learned so much about mining, not the digging in the hole, because I don't do the digging in the hole or the Mm. underground. But I, I, I tend to get involved in all the all the other bits around, you know, anything from the supply chain to the emergency response team to um, even the, so- the, the social side. I've done a lot on the social side, you know, yeah. sort of a, a lot of things that mining companies do do overseas is they put a lot of things back into a community, whether it's building a school or a hospital or fun- funding. They do do, do a lot, which, which goes a little bit unnoticed, I always think. And it was the same yeah. with this um, mining company. It was a case of they were building a hospital. So while I was on the fringes of the building of the hospital, when it came to talking about it socially, I was monitoring how what the impact of that hospital was in as much as had it reduced waste, uh, waiting times, was it coping with the diabetes that was quite relevant in the area, 
And there was a lot of things to do with the monitoring to, to, to prove that the, the hospital was mm -hmm. functioning. And it's kind of a legacy that's been left there from the mining companies. The companies do give a lot back that doesn't actually get noticed. You know, I do mm -hmm. find that. And I think it's a great shame when uh, people, people are not aware of it and people sort of poo-poo the mining industry and mm -hmm. say, you know, they're just taking the commodities and that. They're, they're not, they do do a lot of payback with things. They give mm -hmm. jobs, they do training. Um, you know, I mean, most of the workers are always local people. They're always local people. Uh, mm -hmm. They're doing improvements to houses, say water they, they did at this one particular one. Another one I was working in in Mexico, they wanted them to supply musical instruments to the school, backpacks to the school. So that's what they did. Mm -hmm. they, like a, they like partying. They offered to uh, get them some fresh water and all sorts of things. But, but the, the main thing was... They liked having a party, so all the parties was funded, you know. So, you, so they do ask the community what they want, and, and th yeah. things like that go on. But, it, but it, it's kind of overlooked what they do put back into the communities. So, speaking for you know, you talked about the social stuff, but actually, a lot of the technical stuff you do yes. also feeds into social support. So, certainly, looking at the removal of cyanide from yeah. processes and clean handling of? I'm a certified auditor with the International Cyanide Management Institute. And cyanide is the way, the way you get gold from all rock, basically. And it's about 95% of all the gold mines in the world are using a cyanidation process. And the cyanide code was set up in about the year 2000 after the Biomari disaster where... Uh, no one was killed, but the, the cyanide, the, the tailings dam, there was a breach. The water okay. came over the top and it eventually went down to the Danube and it killed the fish. Yeah. Were, and after that, the United Nations and uh, they, they were part of it. And uh, the United Metals industry, but I think they're defunct now. Um, they, they come up with starting to do the cyanide code. It has developed a little bit more. But it goes in, it looks, at, it looks at, at the supply chain, it looks at the usage on site, it, it looks at not only the, the documentation, it looks at the, uh, you have to do a site visit. So I go around all the process plants, I'm looking at health and safety, I'm looking at emergency response, I'm looking at the environmental side, I'm looking at the, such as the dialogue with the local people, do the local people know you're using cyanide? You know, do you give them updates on it? And then I'm looking at the supply chains. I'd be looking at the import of it. I'd be looking at the railways. I'd be looking at the handling storage, emergency response for transport. So it's a good audit. It's a good audit, uh, that, uh, the cyanide code. And I thoroughly enjoy doing that one. So, but equally, I do others. I help people along doing them. ISO 14001 mm -hmm. for the mining companies. That's your environmental uh, management system. Uh, but what, what I tend to do with my audits are, say, I, I don't like to, a tick box exercise. I've never liked that. I, like, I do like to tick the box, but I, I'll only tick the box if I know it's being implemented on a site. 
So I like to take, if somebody sort of, if I say, well, is there a procedure for the storage of hazardous chemicals? And say, oh, yes, there's a plan and procedure. And I'll say, well, let's go and have a little visit and see what we're doing down there. And in, in a number of instances, when I've gone down and done the site works, they don't match up with what you've been telling me on a piece of paper. Okay. And there's been, been a number of things where I've sort of picked them up and uh, gone back to the, uh, the at the end of a, an audit, you generally do a feedback presentation. I've gone back and showed the presentation. I said, well, this is what's happening. Your boots on the ground. You need to up your game with your site because of occupational health or environmental protection. So I, I like to think I'm quite a hands-on auditor as opposed to a, a tick the box because that's what you want to do. But I like to know in my own mind. And then I always think to myself, well, whatever I've found, I will tell the mine, the mine manager or whoever I'm working for. And then my mm-hmm. conscience is clear because... If they choose not to take my advice, well, that's absolutely fine. I've told you what, what your problem is. I've told you a solution. If I can find a solution and help you with that solution, I will. But it's a case of I don't, I don't have to worry that I haven't told you the truth. I'll, I'll come mm-hmm. and tell you the truth. And if, if you choose to take the advice, you choose to. And if you don't, you don't. But I've, I've done my part by highlighting it. And I was... And I pride myself on doing that. That's my integrity as an auditor to do that. Christine, you have been so much fun to chat to. Your enthusiasm for, you know, for life and for what you do really comes across. I am going to enjoy continuing working with you. And I really hope that you find new enjoyment in your vice president role i'm sure i will once once i've got my feet under the table i'm sure i will <laughs> <laughs> let me get my feet under the table but one thing i will i will say to you what i was sitting in that i'll tell you the story i was sitting in the hairdressers right i'm in the you know the perm and everything and the hairdressers forever say, oh, where you been, Christine? Because it's like the old school, the blue rinse brigades in there, and I've been there as well. And uh, the hairdressers going, where you been, Christine? You know, because I said, oh, I've been to Russia since I last seen you. Well, where did you go? What did you? And we don't really talk about, you know, oh, I went on a cyanide audit. I'll say, <laughs> well, you know, in, bet- in between coming back from there and going to there, I was able to go to St. Basil's and have a look at the pepper pots on the top. I was be able to re- walk around Red Scott. Oh, fantastic. Anyway, this woman's listening to me. And she says, do you ever do talks on what, what you've done? And I say, well, well, professional talks, yes. And she says, would you come and talk to the Women's Institute? And I thought, <laughs> and, uh, and I sort of go along and I thought, well, talk about anyway i told him about, i was talking about mauritania and show them lots of pictures whatever anyway and they all, they they really enjoyed me talking they kept saying well what do you do you know and i told them what i do because to me it's a day job and i just get on with it and do it but with an outsider looking in you don't always envisage a woman doing that because and it, it sounds a bit more exotic than it probably is you know but anyway uh, but I always think to myself, if I can inspire one lady at a meeting or a gentleman, that a, a mature woman can still be valuable at 40 or 40 whatever, 
then that's brilliant to me because I'm not saying somebody's got to do a job like me. You see, I came out of the Navy and I had a busy job. I had a good job in the Navy. I had the children and to make ends meet, I made curtains and I made wedding dresses and things like that because it fitted in with the kids. And it was a case of you start to lose your confidence of your ability of what to do, what to do because you're just not in that field yeah. anymore. All you're doing is washing, cooking, you're walking around the school, you're going to swimming lessons. Can I type as quick as anybody else or can I think anymore? And I <laughs> gradually lost my confidence over this time. And eventually a, a friend of mine, she said to me, you've got, you used to have a PV. A PV is a positive vetting thing for in the Navy. Okay. And she says, would you, and she says they want a confidential typist at the prison just for six weeks. And anyway, I said, oh, I don't know whether I could do that. You know, I'd lost confidence. And she gets saying, there's nothing you can't do. There's only things you haven't learned how to do yet and whatever. So anyway, I went along and, and I stopped there for well over 12 months. And um, by that time, I'd already sort of enrolled to... Um, college and then I went to university because but when I was I was telling ladies what I do and I said I didn't start uni till I was 40 because I'd lost this confidence the confidence started to come back when I got this six weeks job at the prison and then um, I've sort of built up and built up and built up and I I think to myself well if I can inspire one woman at a women's institute to think more of herself that she's not washed up and dried up or whatever that no, i love that you know i'd really be pleased if somebody said well i'm going to do something tomorrow i'm going to do something for myself and get up and get on and i anyway <laughs> i think that's a lovely note to end on it's it's all about inspiring people bringing them along to be the best that they can be and uh, i think you try and do that IOM 3 tries to do that in professional qualifications and so on. So um, it's been a pleasure talking to you this morning. I've really enjoyed it. I hope our listeners enjoy finding out a little bit more about you because you are a little dynamo and a powering force and you will be of huge benefit to IOM 3 moving forward. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. For more information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at iom3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.